Welcome to the ECCN podcast. Yeah, you heard that right. The Early Career Climate Forum is now the Early Career Climate Network. Our mission stays the same, connecting graduate students and early career professionals in climate-related fields. But we've adjusted our name to better reflect our purpose, and we build a new website that is ready for more exciting and diverse content, like this podcast, workshops, webinars, and more. Please check it out after this episode. I'm your host, Tony Clem, and my guest today is Joseph Trujillo, a Hispanic graduate student who studies weather risk communication at the University of Oklahoma. Although Spanish is the second most common language in the United States, it is spoken in 11% of all households, according to the U.S. Census. Warnings for tornadoes, hurricanes, or storms on TV and radio have little consistent language when it comes to Spanish. That can result in people misunderstanding warnings, taking incorrect safety precautions, or putting themselves in danger because they underestimate a threat. As a native from Peru with degrees in Spanish and meteorology and experience in broadcast meteorology, Joseph's work is trying to fill this critical gap. Could you, could you introduce yourself briefly? Well, hello, my name is Joseph Trujillo. I am a graduate research assistant at the Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale Meteorological Studies at the University of Oklahoma. In partnership with NOAA's National Severe Storms Lab and the NOAA National Weather Service Storm Prediction Center. Quite of a hefty, long title. <laughs> Can you describe your graduate research, what you do for your master's? I was originally a meteorologist, but I have transitioned a lot into risk and crisis communication and organizational communication, which I look forward to digging into a little bit throughout this segment. You got your bachelor's in meteorology, um, which is hard enough for most of us, but then you also have a bachelor's in Spanish. You did those at the same time at Texas A&M University? That's correct. What were your biggest challenges completing those two degrees and with excellent GPAs? You know, I'll be completely honest with you. Whenever I started doing both of these degrees at the same time, I always tried to at least strive to make my meteorology classes like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and my Spanish classes Tuesday, Thursday, because I have to admit, you need a different set of brain to look at these two different concepts. I, I feel like, of course, with the bachelors of science, I feel like we can all relate to, you know, um, getting really deep into the science, into the math or whatever is involved there. And you definitely need a different brain to derive equation, equations versus actually going out, writing an analytical essay, say in a Bachelor of Arts degree. So I, I feel like that was my biggest challenge, getting adjusted and making sure my brain was attuned to these two levels of thinking. There would be days that I would come back home and I wouldn't be used to writing so much that I had to just like definitely take a relaxing day off because it was a lot. But honestly, after you get in the rhythm of it, things started to look out a little bit better. And now, especially in a graduate degree, I feel like having both of those skills at hand have really paid off. So when you studied meteorology and Spanish, you also did internships um, in weather broadcasting for TV and radio while you were in college. What was your goal in getting those two degrees and going in that direction? You know, initially, my first goal was to end up working at a broadcast station. And when I first came into Texas A&M, I was just headset on that goal. 
And I decided to give it a shot by go. Uh, my first internship was actually at KXTX Telemundo 39 in Dallas, Texas. And that was my big goal. And I started presenting the weather, but I started quickly noticing that, you know, I would speak Spanish all the time at my house. But when I went to Texas A&M, I wasn't doing it as much. And um, that's whenever my mentor, Nestor Flecha, went out and told me, you might want to consider a, a minor in Spanish, even though you're fluent, you know, it's good to still continue that rhythm. And so that's how I ended up in a BA in Spanish. And my ultimate goal was to, you know, be a bilingual broadcast meteorologist and use both languages in the future. Now, of course, that definitely took a 180 spin later on. <laughs> <laughs> What was it that that made you realize that Spanish is such an advantage in weather forecasting as opposed to only meteorology? I definitely noticed that uh, during my first internship. I truly got a glimpse of how like the broadcast world in general was set up and about how there's currently a lack of, of bilingual meteorologists, yet the, the need for it, they're still huge. You know, you have areas in the United States where there are a big, big uh, population of Spanish speakers, yet you only have one meteorologist or sometimes if you get lucky two in that given station. And so just looking at my prospects, I knew there, there definitely had to be some advantage if you could put on your resume that you could do it in both languages. But of course, that's an uphill battle because uh, you don't get taught meteorology in, in Spanish at college. So a lot of it is self-learning. And so I knew I had to at least get some internship experience or expose myself to something I'm not comfortable with to get the upper hand there. If you enjoyed this episode of the ECCN podcast, please leave a review and make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or Anchor. So ultimately, you decided to go to grad school, even though you did those internships. Um, what made you decide to go to grad school and go to grad school at the University of Oklahoma? It, it all ultimately came down after getting a ton of broadcast experience. It really happened the last year uh, of my undergrad degree because I was a, continuing to do broadcast internships. And I even had a radio show back at A&M with the, uh, with the Spanish speaking community. But, and I remember like I was trying to present to my audience like the different risk levels and, and try to teach them, you know, meteorological terms. And I quickly realized that we were not to where we should be, at least in Spanish. And it really frustrated me. Well, when I was trying to, you know, uh, come up with information for my reel uh, so that, I, uh, you know, I can apply for a job someday, I was struggling uh, on my Spanish side of it because I was not, I did not know what words to actually use and didn't really know whether there were actual translations for some of the words I was trying to communicate. And I remember throughout my internships, I would ask some Spanish speaking meteorologists, like, how, how do you say this? And they were just like, oh, well, that word I sometimes just say in English. But from a communication or a Spanish standpoint, I wouldn't understand that because if I were to communicate that, say to my mom that only speaks Spanish, she wouldn't understand me. And so I got really frustrated with how there was a lack of resources for such a huge community. I mean, Spanish is the secondly most practiced language here in the United States, yet we don't have any resources for it whatsoever. And so that frustration was what led me to do a 180 turn and go into graduate school because there wasn't any 
practical and collective solutions going on at that time. And so I had that mentality of, well, if no one's going to fix it, you got to do it yourself. And that's kind of what led me to go to graduate school. Now, as for OU, I really saw uh, the importance of of being involved in an area like the National Weather Center. You know, uh, the National Weather Center here at OU brings in state partners, even federal partners. And in order to kind of get the word out that we need to improve on bilingual methods, I knew this was the place to be at because there was a lot of potential for partnerships in the future and to truly get the word out there and, and make the impact I wanted to make in the first place. I understand what you mean, I think. I'm bilingual German and English. I, I would have the hardest time explaining my research in German because I've never done it. And I'm pretty sure for a lot of things that aren't, that aren't really uh, good terms in German. So I'd probably just say them in English, knowing that people still wouldn't really understand it. You're originally from Peru. Um, can you tell me a little more about the insights you have because of your background into the Latinx community here in the US, especially with regard to weather and risk communication. I was born in Lima, Peru and came to the US uh, when I was five years old. And I honestly saw two different cultures uh, evolve throughout my childhood. And something I quickly noticed was that our community was never was never really raised in a, you know, a weather-like community. At least here in the U.S., you know, we, oh, you know, we have extra emphasis on our meteorologists, and we grow up, you know, hearing stories of tornadoes or hurricanes and things of that sort, whereas in Peru, we don't experience that at all, and we've, we're only used to earthquakes, and so that truly gave me a good glimpse as to what challenges may lie ahead, at least with communicating information to the Latinx community here in the U.S., because a lot of us weren't raised with that culture. And I think that's important to note as we start, you know, uh, at least hoping to get some educational material out there that we may have to start in a different place than we than where we started with English speakers. And so just growing up with a Spanish speaking community, even here in the U.S., helped me open my eyes to this and really help uh, equip me with materials so that I could be a better risk communicator going forward. Do you have an example of, of the challenge that Spanish speakers in the U.S. have with regard to tornado warnings, things like that, if they, if they have a hard time understanding English? On top of the, of the culture issue, the fact that they were not raised with, with these concepts in the first place, it also ultimately comes down to language. And... Um, so I'm from Lima, Peru, but, and I speak Spanish fluently, but I speak very differently than a Puerto Rican or a Mexican would. And, you know, at the very end of the day, I think that only goes to show how beautiful the Spanish language can be. It has different varieties and culture influences, and it continues to evolve over time. And while, you know, it's great to admire our differences in the Spanish language, it can also be a concerning deal whenever we're trying to communicate risk. Because we're, we want to make sure that whenever we are alerting our communities and prompting them to take action, um, that they also, that we have a word to where every single dialect or regional variety of Spanish is able to understand. And so whenever it comes towards words like, like jargon related words, like, you know, correlation coefficient or anything, or anything you might run into a textbook, it's okay for us uh, to, come up with our own terminology and set an educational campaign. But when it comes towards risk terminology, we have to be a little more aware 
because risk terminology, you know, it's not weather exclusive. We see that in health contexts. You can see that in the back of in the back of a bleach bottle in a little health advisory, for example. And so warning, advisory, watch, these aren't words that are only exclusive of weather. And we have to be aware of that. And that's wherever these dialectical tensions start happening. And we have to find more unifying ways to communicate risk information so that all communities are best equipped uh, and are able to understand what we're actually saying in the first place. My research really digs into bilingual risk and crisis communication, and I want to explore that intersection uh, between dialects and how to best communicate information forward. Uh, I've been exploring uh, through uh, the NOAA National Weather Service Storm Prediction Center Spanish Language Initiative. It's it, it's an initiative here that we started between SIMS and, and the Storm Prediction Center to really go out and explore how meteorologists are currently communicating risk information. And so a, a simple turn on to a channel, I started noticing how people were uh, communicating, for example, the SPC's risk categories into Spanish. And it didn't take long to realize that every single meteorologist, depending on where they were from, were using their own terminology to communicate that. Even though the SPC already provided an official Spanish translation, they were going by their own dialects. And whenever, uh, and I wanted to look into that and explore why. And so we actually brought in some uh, Spanish dialectical experts or linguistic experts, excuse me, from Penn State University. And we showed them the terminology and we asked them, is there a reason why these meteorologists are not agreeing on these terms? And they highlighted to us that dialects were getting in the way of communicating this proper message because there were in the official SPC translation, for example, there were only there were words being used there that, that are only practiced in places like Spain to where someone in Latin America wouldn't even know what that means. And uh, a good example of that is the slight category. Uh, the official translation is the word leve. And that word is only practiced in Spain. Whenever I first looked at it, I was very confused too. And so they proposed to change it to a more unifying bajo or low. And um, it made a whole lot of sense. And so we actually came up with a proposed risk category that had more unifying Spanish terminology. Now, this hasn't been implemented by the Storm Prediction Center uh, at this time. But it really did give us a good insight as to what challenges lay ahead in terms of communicating Spanish, because I want to push forward the idea that translation isn't simply putting something into Google Translate or direct translations it aren't the, the thing we should be focusing on here. It's not about, uh, I guess, being consistent between English and Spanish. It's more about being relevant. And because Spanish sometimes requires uh, to use a different word to be able to communicate that message forward. And I think that's kind of what this research really tried to amplify out, that we need to be aware of that going forward. And, you know, this is not only just connecting towards Spanish speakers, we could easily be able to apply this framework to other languages like French or Vietnamese, depending on the immigrant population here in the United States. Um, and I think that's an important thing to note that, you know, even though this was all done in Spanish, this sort of framework of keeping the jargon-like terms with an educational campaign and, um, you know, consulting with language experts on risk terminology is a good practice, at least a good first step going forward when communicating this information. And I imagine having someone from another country do this research adds even more value to it because you're the one who realizes that the original intent of using simply a Spanish word to translate the English word for slight tornado probability 
doesn't make sense if you're from Mexico or from Peru or some other Spanish-speaking country that doesn't necessarily use the same word, right? Yeah. Right. And I do want to give so much credit to uh, to the audience in Bryan College Station, uh, the Spanish-speaking audience, to where I presented this information to in the first place, because I remember doing a Facebook Live to this audience, trying to explain the SPC categories. I pulled up the official definitions, and I was getting so many questions on that feed, like, what does this mean? What does that mean? And that was one of the very first instances that I had to sit there and take a second look at it and be like, okay, so these words aren't actually making sense. Like, you know, sometimes I feel like we're privileged in our own senses by going through a meteorology degree that, you know, we don't have much problems with this. But once I started noticing that the community itself had a lot of questions, it definitely needed some more attention. And that's whenever we started applying these, these frameworks. So definitely uh, this, this study would have never been pursued in the first place if it wasn't for our own feedback from our own Spanish speaking communities. You're also involved in the probabilistic hazards information experiment at SIMS and OU. Could you talk a little more about what that involves and how it ties into your research? Of course. Uh, probabilistic hazard information is actually uh, a forecast methodology where we introduce a probability to a given hazard. So say a tornado or a severe thunderstorm, for example. And at first glance, this is this is really interesting because you know you can now communicate to your audience that you know there's a 60% chance of a tornado occurring or an 80% or a 20%. And so our technology continues to advance to where we are capable of saying that. But before actually rolling this out uh, towards operations, one of the biggest questions still is how are we going to effectively be able to implement this throughout the weather service? and for it to also meet the needs of partners like broadcast meteorologists and emergency managers. And so the probabilistic hazard information experiment has been going on for a couple of years now, even before I got into graduate school. But they have really increased the, uh, the importance of applying communication methods towards this. Because uh, as, they are, as they are tweaking the, the science behind it, we also need to be aware uh, whether this is a right practice and whether, you know, wh whether service offices are act would actually like to use this product and would be effective at better communicating information in the first place. And so um, every year, of course, this year was held back due to COVID-19 restrictions, but uh, we would bring in um, National Weather Service forecasters, emergency managers, and broadcast meteorologists. And through uh, the NOAA hazardous weather testbed, we would put them in simulations to where they were using uh, this new framework in real time. And so you had the weather service forecasters giving a now cast and providing this probabilistic information, while the emergency manager room and the broadcast meteorologist room went about interpreting it on their own. And we put them in a real life scenario as to where they needed to communicate this. I specifically more worked on the broadcast meteorologist room uh, due to having some experience beforehand. And uh, in that room, we actually um, made a mock television studio where they got to pretty much practice their everyday jobs. They got a camera, a green screen, you name it. And they got to communicate this information forward. And so we, actually brought in our first bilingual participant last year to see whether communicating probabilistic information was more of a challenge or just as much in the Spanish language. Wow, fascinating. You mentioned that you're more involved in the, uh, in the weather broadcasting side of this experiment. How does your experience 
in weather broadcasting help you inform and train broadcasters and conduct research about risk communication? I really think just being familiar with all of the lingo that broadcast meteorologists use. There's a lot of acronyms out there. And of course, some terminology that scientists would have to be a little bit better familiarizing themselves with, like, what is a crawl? What is a cut-in? And things of that sort. It was, it really helped me uh, to, at least on an experimental context, really familiarize myself with how this even looks like in the first place. And then, uh, of course, while analyzing uh, the information, I would start thinking of things uh, that my broadcast mentors would tell me, like, you know, at the very end of the day, for example, um, it's what pleases your news director is what's really going to get across. And that's not a factor that, you know, a scientist have to worry about. And so that really helped me come up with follow up questions relating towards like station management, because sure, maybe a broadcast meteorologist would be comfortable with communicating probabilistic information and they would be comfortable with, uh, with these percentages overall, but would their news directors, would their management allow this? Uh, and in terms of like adding it towards any potential like news station apps, how would that process work around? And so I definitely think that my experience in weather broadcasting helped me get a leg up in this side of the experiment. And honestly, it was a full circle moment. Like, hey, <laughs> I came to OU to, you know, take a step aside from the broadcast world and dig in into more social science research. But I really felt like this opportunity was amazing. It tied all of my biggest passions into one. And I have truly enjoyed this uh, so far. What a wonderful, what a wonderful integration of both your experience and your, and your passion for, for research. You're also head of the Latinx community at the American Meteorological Society. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're trying to achieve there, what your, um, what your work encompasses there? Of course. So the AMS Latinx Committee was actually inaugurated uh, this past January. And the way I like to go about explaining this is we're trying to bring different sectors uh, of the weather, water, and climate enterprise. So bring in the broadcasters, bring in people from academia, public, private sectors, and students, to where we can finally start organizing as a collective body. Uh, uh, you know, throughout this podcast, I've been insinuating that there is currently a lack of resources in the, in the Spanish language, but let's not even dive into just Spanish, just the Latinx community in general. We're an underrepresented group. There's, a, you know, even in my program, I only had like two or three Latinx individuals within, within my own cohort. And it's just so fascinating to see that even up to this day, I haven't had a Latinx professor teach a given course, uh, if, if you give an exception to all the Spanish courses, of course. But within meteorology, I haven't been able to get that experience quite yet. And I feel like a lot of us can relate. And so the two, there's two main purposes for this AMS Latinx committee. One is to create a safe space for these Latinx scientists and create a platform for us to better network and, and better be able to get a hold of one another. Because in instances like whenever I was trying to pursue a broadcast career, I didn't have anyone that could review my Spanish reel. I lucked out by having mentors in bilingual broadcast stations, but I definitely know that that's not the fate of every single bilingual broadcaster out there. They have to do a lot of things on their own. 
And, you know, even though I had to go through some of those struggles, I would never wish that upon a future generation. And so that's what this committee is trying to help do, bridge together the Latinx community. And not only that, of course, truly be advocates for our community in general by advocating and pushing for the need of more, um, of more resources in Spanish uh, for the broader community in general. You're scheduled to graduate next May. What are your plans for the future? So... I am currently a now a second year master's student. So coming this May, I look forward to applying to a PhD program. You know, would I have would I have been able to guess that even like two years ago? Not at all. <laughs> But I really think this is the research that I've, you know, taken a first deep dive in has some promising results. And investing in it into a PhD and, and looking on into the future. I really think is, is, a, is a great approach. Continuing to advocate for these resources through research and of course, through, through service through the AMS Latinx community really seems like a very strategic route going forward. Uh, because I know we talked a lot about weather risk communication today, but we could easily apply this uh, towards the climate world as well. Because for example, in, in the Spanish language, you have, uh, at least in English, we make a differentiation between the terms weather and climate whenever we go out and communicating to our audiences. That, um, that distinction is not set up in Spanish currently. Right now, the words uh, for weather, which is el tiempo, and clima, which is for climate, are used interchangeably, especially in Latin America. And so we haven't even been able to solve the premise of these definitions. And we ha have so much work to do as well in the climate field as to how to best communicate this information forward and making sure that we have these right definitions uh, going forward. And so there's so much potential, not just in the weather world, but even outside. And I truly look forward into digging more into these issues so that we have the best tools going forward to communicate to our audiences and also motivate them to take action, not just, of course, in like weather-related terms to seek shelter, but also take climate action as well, because that is definitely one of the more pressing issues of our time. And the Latinx community could really help serve um, and really help contribute to make, uh, making this planet a better place. And that's it for this episode of the ECCN podcast. Thanks for listening. And special thanks to Joseph Trujillo for chatting with us. You can check out existing Spanish weather terminology on the AMS Glossary website. You can also follow the AMS Latinx committee on Twitter and connect with Joseph on LinkedIn. All the links are in the description of this episode. Tune in again next month for another episode of the ECCN podcast. And until then, stay safe and healthy. For the Early Career Climate Network, I'm Tony Clem.